We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovics. Joining me today is Tim Price, Director at Price Value Partners and the author of Investing Through the Looking Glass, A Rational Guide to Irrational Financial Markets. Tim, thanks for joining me again today. Thanks for having me, Tom. So the president of Argentina recently went to Davos and told them that they are heading down a road of impoverishment and collectivism and that that doesn't end well. He told them that they are destroying the West. Someone also recently sent me a clip from the WEF that declared that farming, fishing, and energy production are going to be considered ecocide and that they want to legally recognize these activities as criminal. So my question to you is, what is the average person actually taking from the WEF? Are they taking them seriously anymore? And how have these ideas come about? It's a good question. I was struck earlier this week, might have been yesterday, by there was a an editorial in the Financial Times basically s- saying that the heading was something like, what is Davos for anymore? Does Davos really count for anything anymore? And the substance of the article, which was a, a, a sort of leader editorial on the letters page, was I found quite striking because up until now, the Financial Times and I guess The Economist, a sort of sister publication, have been critically supportive of Davos man, we might call this entity that's sort of the product of the think tanks and the, you know, the glad handing and the networking and all the rest. And for them to be very, very, the best way probably to describe it was lukewarm. I find really rather encouraging because it, it, it seemed, I'm not trying to scrabble for good news, but it seemed to me that it was symptomatic of a slight change in the air that there's a growing suspicion of exactly what these forums are all about, about the people who network there, about their maybe ulterior motives. And for the FT itself, which has been such a cheerleader for the cause to be so neutral or cautious about the whole topic, I just found was a quite encouraging sign. So I think the average person does, has never heard of the World Economic Forum, but I think the people who have heard of it are now increasingly distrustful of what's coming out of it. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that for a certain community of people out there, and I think specifically, I'm familiar with the sort of the audience on Twitter. I'm on my third Twitter account now. I confidently expect to be onto a fourth before the, the year is out. Then the WEF, the WHO, and the United Nations are all of a par, and they are frankly, not necessarily on humanity's side. Yeah, it's something I think that is becoming more and more blatant. When you consider that fishing, farming, and energy production are going to be considered criminal from their standpoint. I mean, what are we supposed to eat? I mean, apart from insects, because we know that sort of Klaus wants us to all eat the bugs. Yeah. But this is quite ridiculous. And, and again, it's I think more and more people are joining the dots dare I say it more spiritual level, I think I really am a believer in something called the Great Awakening. Mm-hmm. And again, for people who are either religiously or spiritually inclined, lots of people I think have found some form of either religion or heightened spirituality since 2020, since COVID first came about. And as an English graduate, I stand on the ceremony of linguistics and, and meaning. So words are important and meanings are important. So a lot of people would say, for example, that we seem to be in you know almost like an economic Armageddon. And I think that's overstretching the point. What I think is you can legitimately say is that we are throughout the West living through apocalypse. 
And the reason I say apocalypse is because I used to think they were the same thing, that Armageddon and Apocalypse were the same structure. But in reality, there's a subtle you know, degree of sort of gradation between the two. Armageddon may be the end of the world, but Apocalypse, the ancient Greek origin of Apocalypse, is unveiling or unmasking. And I honestly think what's happening in the world, and has been for the last few years, is that a veil is being drawn back, a bit like the veil that you know that hid the Wizard of Oz. And having been told for years not to pay any attention to the man behind the curtain, every day millions and millions of people are waking up and finding that there is a man behind the curtain. They don't like what he's doing, and they want him to stop. Well, I couldn't agree with that more. You know, it seems like my friend Tom Luongo, I think, has a great way to put this. He said, these people are vandals. I think that's one of the best ways to look at the only motivations that result in these the implementation of these policies that we're currently seeing, especially in the West. Not only vandals, but I forget who it was, recently coined the phrase philanthropath. So there's this <laughs> misguided assessment that is certain people, people who should remain nameless that are basically self-appointed heads of the World Health Organization community with no medical training whatsoever, but a huge leverage by dint of their billions. They're not philanthropists in the classic sense of the word. They're, I mean, people will probably realize to whom I'm speaking, so I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not going to allude to him indirectly, but it's not philanthropy when with every million dollars you give away, you, you end up richer as a result. That's a very strange form of philanthropy. So... Again, I think that's symptomatic of what we're dealing with. You, you have self-appointed people who are unequipped and qualified for the job they're doing, whether it's a sort of a, a former Marxist terrorist at the head of the WHO or a former software guy at the head of the, basically a sort of joint co-head of sort of world health related matters. This is absurd. Nobody voted for these people. Nobody wants them. Their motives have to be questioned. And I think, you know, as we've just been discussing, I think there's a growing sense the problem is that people are somewhat compromised by the fact that anyone who's still a consumer of mainstream media has very little or no idea what's going on in the world because you're not being told anything of value. A classic example would be, well, I think I went on 10 marches in total in London over the last three years. I've never marched before COVID, but I felt sufficiently aggrieved and angered by things like lockdown. And I, I felt I wanted to sort of stand up and be counted. And I think the largest march through central London, which stopped basically which closed Oxford Street on a Saturday, which is quite a big deal for anyone that knows central London, completely unreported on the mainstream media. So you have this weird world in which millions of people are literally rising, and yet the media is choosing, for whatever reason, just to ignore it. So you had that in the UK, you had the truckers basically protest in Canada, and then you had this absurd situation where firstly it would, it would barely be reported by the mainstream media, and then when it was, the Canadian government started basically sanctioning people who simply gave money to them. Mm-hmm. And so there's a as if a sort of, of I mean, Churchill talked about an iron curtain descending over Europe, but I'd say there's a, a sort of fascistic curtain that's descending across the Western world, and it is extraordinary to watch. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think if we step back and we consider the incentives, as you put it, when you have a quote-unquote philanthropist that is making millions or if not billions of dollars on the back of funding some of these programs, you really have to stop and think. But I wanted to go back to kind of what we were talking about earlier about Davos. If we start to consider farming and the things that keep the lights on and keeps people fed, if we start considering that criminal, what are the people at the head of that snake supposed to eat and heat themselves with as well? Like It just seems so counterintuitive. Well, I was looking at a, I, I don't know, are you familiar with Substack service uh, provided by Doomberg? 
Mm-hmm. So I was I was looking at a, a recent piece of Dunberg's and I felt obliged to sort of respond. And my response was sort of along the lines of you know, a growing number of people, maybe we're close to a critical mass of people waking up to the fact that what we've been told is a, you know, the drive for net zero and the green revolution is it seems a lot more akin to something like a, a communistic plot for basically the West to commit suicide economically and through energy policy out of completely misguided green eco-puritanism so for example the you know the the west is being encouraged to basically abandon fossil fuels and to pivot its energy infrastructure towards things like solar and wind and a whole load of other untrustworthy and highly expensive technologies and at exactly the same time the biggest polluter on the planet which is china is perfectly happily building coal plants as far as the eye can see none of this makes any sense i mean a relatively small country if not economy like great britain's whatever we do to attempt to achieve net zero is going to be just billions of pounds completely wasted and thrown down the drain and so one of the terrible things that's happened over recent years is that the media and some market forces have also been captured by green billionaires whose motives think really have to be questioned on a related note i'm reading a fascinating book see if I can find the title of it in a second, but it, it's it's by a scientist called Gold. I think it was written in, published in 2001, that suggests that even the term fossil fuels is a bit of a misnomer because this theory is that fossil fuels are, are no such thing. They're not necessarily derived from squashed dinosaurs. <laughs> that They relate to something that's happening in, in a biosphere beneath the Earth's surface, and they may be far less rare than we led to believe, and that the, the term fossil fuels was basically coined by the Rockefellers to give the illusion of scarcity to something that's actually very, very common in the uh, within the Earth's surface. So there's a book which we probably discussed one of the last times we chatted, mm-hmm. and it's called 180 Degrees, mm-hmm. Unlearn the Lies You've Been Taught to Believe. And the, the pseudonymous author is a guy called Fergus O'Connor Greenwood. So it's not the real name of the author, and that's mm-hmm. a name of an Irish politician. I'm actually reading it right now. But I mean, 180 Degrees I came across last summer and I'd recommend it to anybody with some reservations. The reservations being, it is the most unsettling thing I've ever read in my entire life. Mm-hmm. But at the same token, it's also probably the most important thing I think I've ever read in my entire life. And it strongly suggests if you have the appetite for it and you need a strong stomach to get through it, because there are some very painful truths if they are truths. But the essence of it is that, as a subhead title suggests, we have been lied to forever about pretty much everything. And this is why I use that phrase apocalypse and refer to the the unveiling and the unmasking. It really does seem to me as if we're living through an extraordinary period of, of revelations about the way the world really works. And bluntly speaking, nobody likes what is scurrying around underneath a rock that we've all just overturned. Yeah, absolutely. And I would also highly recommend your guys' podcast with Fergus O'Connor Greenwood on the book. I thought that was I immediately had to listen to it a second time because it was so interesting to me. I mean, the astonishing thing about that book is it's something like 850 pages, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's a pleasure to read because a lot of this, the content is deeply unsettling, but it's well-written. It's an easy read to the extent that there's a lot of material there, all of the suggestions, all the sources, all the facts are referenced. So it's not it's not just an act of sort of blatant rabble-rousing. It's very well-researched. It's very well thought out. And as I say, the, the scope of potentially the extent to which we've all been misled about a whole variety of topics is mind-altering. Yeah, and I think the other important part about it is to consider how to have those conversations with other people. 
not by trying to ram your point into their heads, but by asking questions to get them to question their assumptions as well. I mean, that's a very good point. So one of the problems, one of the reasons why the whole COVID and alleged vaccine issue has been so problematic is that it's become extremely easy, overly easy for people to fall out over relatively modest you know, differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. So it's been a hyper-polarizing debate. And one thing that the author of 180 Degrees is very good at is the psychology of basically debate. He says that in a nutshell, his his conclusion is people will not go from A to Z or A to Z in one easy, mm-hmm. you know, in one fell swoop. But if you if you're polite, if you're nice, if you're gentle and kind and sympathetic, you can maybe get someone to go from A to B and then from B to C and then from C to D and so on. But you cannot, it's impossible. The way humanity is configured, the way our brains are configured, the way our personalities and our egos are configured, it is almost impossible to get someone to go from A to Z overnight. That's just not how our minds work. So if you think something is very, very important, crucially important to somebody, then the best you can do is to say, look, I think his response is to say something whenever someone disagrees with you, you don't say, well, you're an idiot. You say, hmm, is that so? And then you just allow a debate, a conversation to sort of percolate up organically almost. Mm -hmm. He's very good on the psychology of conversation. Yeah. And I think it's not only a book that really opens your eyes to a lot of very deeply unsettling issues, as you said, but from that perspective, it also teaches you, let's say, a type of skill and and a little bit about psychology as well, because I think that's the important piece to be able to have a conversation like that. In one of the podcasts that I do with Paul Rodriguez, my friend Paul Rodriguez, they called the State of the Markets. And we had one several years ago, and it's still one of the most surprising answers to a question that I, I can remember from doing. We've done nearly 200 of them now. And we had a, a gentleman on by the name of Jörg Guido Hulsman, who's a, an Austrian school, classical economics professor in, I think he teaches in France. And Guido, I've met a few times, a lovely, lovely, lovely guy. And towards the end of the interview, we asked him, if you could change anything about the system, what would you change? And I was expecting a sort of hard money answer, like I'd, I'd change the central banking system, I'd, you know, change, I'd advocate for a, a culture of harder money, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And his answer was really intriguing. What he said was, I would get the government out of the educational system. And if you think about it, it's actually a blindingly obvious, blindingly apparent truth that one of the problems is if you have a poorly educated workforce, what good can possibly come of that? And I bow to no one in my criticism of government and the big state, but one of the many things that government should get out of, as Jörg, I think, correctly cited several years ago, is the educational system. If we can, I mean, I'm trying to think, was it Milton Friedman that said, if you if you gave the federal government control of the Sahara, pretty soon there'd be a shortage of sand. So we don't really trust the government to deliver anything except sort of the bare essentials. And most people would assume that's something like basically keeping the streetlights on and maybe servicing an army and not mm-hmm. much else, maybe maintaining the rule of law. But very, very other things seem to be that critical, that, that critical enough to be left just to the government, certainly not running the economy and certainly not running the currency. Mm-hmm. If we're doubtful of the role of government, then why on earth are we letting government basically educate our children? I mean, it's a very important point. But just before we move on, do you by chance remember the episode number that that podcast was? No, but I'll, while we talk, I'll see if I can see if I can find it and okay. um, take it from there. You know, I think it comes back down to incentives. I spoke with somebody that you would know well, Dave Collum. Yeah, 
we did a three-way conversation, or I guess four-way conversation, just before Christmas. We had Dave Collum, Tom Luongo, and Rudy Havenstein. Oh, the all-time greats. Yeah, it was quite an interesting conversation. I wanted to be able to give my listeners something quite spicy before we signed off for the holidays, let's say. And Dave brought up a great point about how the kids that he is now teaching, how they react to just having questions asked. And Mm -hmm. he brought up, you know, the vaccine, he brought up climate change, he brought up a couple of these topics. And he said, you know, guys, next time you hear any of these things brought up, or you see an article in the news about them, just stop and question that they might be total bullshit. And I guess the class just goes absolutely silent. And he just brings it up to try to help these young minds understand that there are two sides to the story and not just to believe the first thing that they read in the headline. And he said, if anybody has any questions, I try to be very approachable. My door is always open. You know, I'm not going to bully you. Let's have a discussion about this and we'll both be better off for it. And he said, in his years of doing this, he has never had anybody come to him to actually have a conversation. And this year, in fact, he got quite reprimanded, I guess, by the dean of the school mm. for just trying to bring up, you know, teaching these kids how to think instead of what to think. And I think you guys do a great job of helping people to understand that point as well on your show and your writing. Well, it's very kind. I mean, the, there's, a, there's a couple of things to, to say in response to that. I, I know, I mean, I don't have children, but Paul has a, a young daughter and a young son. And he says, basically, he, he views his role to basically sort of debrief them and de-brainwash them every time they come home from school now, that they, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't necessarily trust the system to educate them in the way that most parents would like to think their kids are being schooled. So we've come to a very strange, very strange pass indeed when parents are going to effectively forced to sort of re- replace the role of the teacher. Anyway, I mean, there's so many things to sort of raise issues about. You know, have you got a spare couple of days? Yeah, well, exactly. And, you know, for myself, it's a real challenge to see how that, let's say, has come about because we've never had more access to information. And I think, obviously, there's a very important point to, you know, how we receive that information, which is being able to filter out what is more than likely truthful versus what isn't, again, kind of going back to questioning all of these different narratives. That's absolutely right, because I remember someone saying there's a continuum and the continuum begins pre-internet and then after sort of mid-90s, we get the Mm post-internet world and everything changes. And I remember someone far more intelligent than me saying it used to be the case, basically pre-internet, that you needed a, a, a really big funnel to get information. They were talking about investment markets. They were talking about the role of sort of trading and investing and putting capital at risk mm-hmm. and basically saying that you know, information, data maybe not so much, but information and wisdom was quite rare. And as a result, you needed a big funnel to try and catch as much as you could and then sort of make sense of the output. Now you need a big filter because mm-hmm. we're drowning in this stuff. And so the, there needs to be some sort of active discernment so we can sift the wheat from the chaff. And not only that, but it gets even more complicated to the extent that you're talking about, you know, let's say the, the, the right answer and the wrong answer in the, in the scholastic system. But I read English at a uh, university, and I, I used to have 
I used to be slightly sort of have reservations about that in the context of sort of a, a money management career, but I don't anymore because I think basically all roads lead to Rome. There's whatever you study will have some application. If I'd had my time again, I probably would, maybe would have chose, if I'd known I was going to end up in the investment world, I may have chosen either history or psychology, but that, that's by the by. And that's a sort of a, you know, that's a, a pure hypothetical. But to give you an, an example of where I think English comes in, there's a there's a, an interview with the playwright Harold Pint that I've been desperately trying to find. So I remember coming across about 30 years ago, and I thought it was a very insightful observation that he made. And as I remembered, it goes something like this. There's no such thing as objective reality. Okay, there's no... There's no like binary black or white answer to what truth is, because mm -hmm. let's say for the sake of argument, you have two people walking down the street and then they see some kind of car accident, even though they're both almost at a, an identical place in space and time, their accounts of what happened in that accident are going to be different from each other. They're not going to be identical. If that's what, what, what the, let's say your version of reality is, and that's how much a version of reality can be shaped or distorted by tiny changes either in a personality or in position or perspective then what hope is there of getting you know, a definitive truth in this world all we get is i mean this is marcus aurelius now but all we get is perspectives and not the truth mm -hmm. so a getting to the whatever the truth might be is more difficult than we might have thought and b once you've got it it's not necessarily the, the defining article either so you know i guess all this is advocating for is is degree of sort of care and understanding rather than jumping to conclusions about anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, to your point about, let's say, the difference between knowledge and information, I saw a really interesting graphic the other day, and it said, basically, this is information, and it shows a bunch of random scattered dots. And then knowledge is the slide next to it, and it shows all the dots connected to form an actual picture. And I thought that was a great way of piecing it and visualizing it, because without being able to, A, to be able to question these things, but B, to be able to put those pieces of the puzzle together, you're not going to be able to you know, operate in the world just based on information alone. And it is also said that both creativity and also entrepreneurialism and entrepreneurial genius comes from making associations between things that people simply haven't made links between before. Which is a quite a, quite a straightforward, it was an almost incredibly simple observation, but terribly profound. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Tim, now that we've solved all of the world's problems, yeah, what should we do now? I think we should crack open a four pack. <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on if Davos is really a symptom of kind of this this recognition of the current credit and debt system, the failure of that system, and does it end up? trying to be a fix for that instead of focusing on, let's say, growth, efficiency, and better energy production? I think one thing that we can probably agree on is that the, uh, we're talking about it, uh, maybe at the top of the show, maybe before we started, it was the speech by Javier Malay uh, mm -hmm. yesterday, uh, which I think probably took a lot of people by surprise because they, they weren't expecting someone to speak truth to power, so to speak. But I think one thing we can, we can probably by and large agree on is that what Davos represents is a particular type of big state, command economy, dirigiste system, which is not free market capitalism. It might be crony capitalism, but it's not a genuine free market variety, which is sadly almost sort of in retreat as far as the eye can see. That would be my conclusion of the last, say, four years. And there's a, an assumption by many people, obviously people particularly who are socialistically inclined, that the government has the answers, that the state has the answers. 
and I keep coming back to one specific point, which is something I came across in a, a, a book I would recommend to anybody, which is a book called 40 Centuries of Wage and Price Controls. Mm-hmm. And you can read it. It's by Schwettinger and Butler, are the authors. And basically, you can get a copy of 40 Centuries of Wage and Price Controls for free via the Heritage Foundation of the Mises website in uh, Mises.org, I think is the address. Mm-hmm. But 40 Centuries of Wage Controls is uh, Wage and Price Controls is a history of government intervention in markets. And my favorite example of all of them is something called the Edict of Diocletian. So the Edict of Diocletian occurred, let me just see, around Diocletian took the throne of the Roman Empire in AD 284. And see if any of this sounds familiar. So he had a huge problems with the military because the Roman army was overextended, was overexpanded and was costing a fortune. So there was an inflationary crisis. Price of goods and foodstuffs and things were going up through the roof. And as a result, he had a currency crisis because he was then basically debauching the currency. Does any of this sound familiar today? Oh, you weren't talking about today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. More things change, the more they remain the same. And so this is this is from basically 40 centuries of wage and price controls. Diocle the bull by the horns and issued a new denarius, which was frankly of copper and made no pretense of being anything else. It was previously silver. In doing this, he established a new standard of value. The effect of this price needs no explanation. There was a readjustment upward and very much upward in price. The option of either inflating, minting increasingly worthless denarii, or to deflate in the form of cutting government expenditures, he chose to inflate. He also chose to, this is the point I really want to get to, he also chose to fix the prices of goods and services and suspend the freedom of the people to decide what the currency was actually worth. He fixed the maximum prices at which beef, grain, eggs and clothing could be sold and the wages that workers could receive, and prescribed the death penalty for anyone who disposed of his wares at a higher figure. Prices still went up. So on pain of death, you've got a governor with absolute power who can't stop prices from going up. And you have to think that's pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. And then one only has to look back to the so-called Inflation Reduction Act of the Biden administration. I mean, never was government legislature more misnamed Well, I remember speaking with somebody just before Christmas, I believe, and there was a survey taken of the average person. And it was something like, it was somewhere between 60 to 70% of people that were surveyed were in agreement with price controls. And so that just goes to show you that we're very bad at learning from history and understanding what price controls or what the outcomes are of these issues that have absolutely been tried before. So I'm going to pull off a bit of a sort of vault fast now, a sort of 180 degree <laughs> handbrake turn, having suggested that government should stay out of the educational system. I'm now going to say that government should be involved in education to the extent that it teaches basic economics. And when I say basic economics, not Keynesian or neo-Keynesian economics, but basic classical economics. And probably my all-time favorite and probably most people's all-time favorite example of classical economics would be, and I'm sure you'd be familiar with Frederick Bastiat's moral of the broken, what's so-called broken windows fallacy. Okay. Do you know the broken windows fallacy? Well, explain it for our listeners. I think think you may well have come across it several times. It's it's Mm -hmm. a very popular one and often people are unaware of it or they haven't come across it before, but they should. It's a compelling story. So the story goes that there's basically a, a bit of a there's a bit of a sort of fight breaks out in a street in Paris and someone puts a brick through a baker's window and pretty soon a crowd gathers 
They go, look at that mess. I'm going to have to clear this up. And then some bright spark in the crowd says, well, it's a shame that the baker had his had his window broken, but look at it this way. Now we're going to have to get a glazier to come in and fix the window. So, you know, every cloud has a silver lining. And maybe we should break all the windows and have a sort of a, a boom of, of window recovery. Mm-hmm. And then someone who is a bit more sophisticated steps out from the crowd and says, hang on, wait a second. You're only looking at what you can see, but, you know, we should also be aware of what we can't see. So the original essay in French is, ce qu'on peut voir, ce qu'on ne peut pas. In other words, that which is seen and that which is unseen. And this is the way economics is reported and financial news is reported on every media platform today, essentially, which is we know what we can see. We know what the government's budget is for something. But if government spends something on whatever it might be, green energy nonsense, for example, however many billion is squandered on that project is billions that can't be spent on something else. Mm -hmm. So there's no free lunch and there's no infinite resource here. So so many people are distracted by the, oh, look, say a budget. I mean, we have a budget in, in the UK and they tinker with the system every year. And it's, the whole thing's a largely a waste of time. I refer you to the Edict of Diocletian story from earlier about the government mucking around with the economy. Mm-hmm. But there is what is seen and what is unseen. So to go back to the Bastiat story, yes, the broken window necessitates that a, a glazier has to be summoned and he's better off to the tune of the price of a pane of window and some fresh glass. But the poor baker, who is completely blameless in this story, is now out of pocket to the tune of the price of a window. That might mean he can't now buy a new suit or new pair of shoes or you know send his kids to school or whatever it is. So for everything in the economy that is seen, there is a countervailing thing that we need to bear in mind is what could that have been more profitably done with that money that's now not going to be done with that money? And the problem is we're dealing with political agendas. So there are only three ways of spending money. You can spend your own money yourself. You can spend your own money on other people. Or you can spend other people's money on other people. And the last is the worst form of spending money on anything because it inevitably gets misdirected. Guess which is the way we allow our, our financial system to be and our economy to be directed? The last one, of course. Exactly. Yeah. So you, it's after a while, it's fairly straightforward to see where the problems lie. And one of the problems is don't let politicians near money. Well, you know, it's interesting how you brought that up about keeping the government in the education system from an economic standpoint. And immediately my mind went to the idea of the government doesn't spend money like the average person should, right? We don't want to be teaching people the MMT way of balancing a checkbook or balancing a household. We want to be teaching people to you know, use debt where it is necessary or, or needed sparingly if possible to save. But you know, those concepts seem, at least in my world, to a lot of the people that I run into, you know, obviously not people that necessarily listen to the show, but there's a lot of that that is, it seems like a foreign concept, an old school concept to save money and to use debt sparingly. I think we can circle straight back to where we first started on this argument now, to the extent that we were talking about Davos and what Davos represents. Mm-hmm. I think what Davos represents is basically now the end of the cycle. So one of the problems with the modern economy and the modern financial system is that it's based on debt. It's a debt-based or credit-based system. Mm-hmm. That system requires constant issuance of debt simply to keep going. So it's it's a bit like running to stand still. The system cannot survive unless there is constant debt issuance. Mm-hmm. And as every government has shown throughout history, there comes a point at which the piper needs to be paid and there's no money left in the kitty. So 
One thing I think you could quite legitimately argue is that the reason everything has happened over the last four years that's happened is because effectively it's the last death rattle of the of the debt-based modern monetary system. Mm-hmm. Why were there problems in the repo market in 2019 before COVID even arrived? Why was the entire, seemingly the entire economy of the world forcibly shut down in early 2020? And I don't think you need to be a rabid conspiracy theorist to come to the conclusion that actually this had very little to do with public health care and an awful lot to do with authorities and people who are close to the top of the money tree trying desperately to work out how to keep the system afloat. And one thing that happened was we had the biggest wealth transfer in human history. So the poorest in the world got poorer. The working class got immiserated. Small to medium-sized entities lost money. And yet there was this incredible wealth transfer to the people at the top of the pile to the order of, I think it was something like $7 trillion. So there were definitely winners and losers from lockdown. And yet, through all this time, you know, the, the debt burden for pretty much every economy has got worse and worse and worse. And in the US, it's egregiously awful, like $34 trillion or so, which is an amount of money that's never going to get paid back. Mm-hmm. So now I think if we're going to compare things like, say, to the days of ancient Rome, we're now at the looting the treasury stage of proceedings, which is, this is literally the last gasp of a sort of dying empire. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't think it's any surprise that we're now starting to see from those media platforms and news channels that are, are willing to report it, we're now starting to see a lot more and hear a lot more about you know, the so-called BRICS or BRICS plus countries, the, the likes of Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, who are incidentally, many of which are very resource rich economies, thinking quite seriously, by all accounts, about replacing King Dollar with something that might perhaps have some form of hard commodity backing. Because mm-hmm. the petrodollar as was, is quite clearly no longer fit for purpose. We know that, for example, the Federal Reserve uh, which is not a government agency, but a private banking cartel, see the creature from Jekyll Island for more on this topic. We know that the Federal Reserve basically was established in 1913 on the quiet. And since that time, the US dollar has lost something like 98 or 99% of its purchasing power. And that's with the so-called benign stewardship of the Fed to, you know, behind it. Yeah. So you have appalling problems when government gets involved in money because... Uh, it's it's it is a rank inflationist, and we're now living through maybe the last days of state-sanctioned inflationism. So, as the classical economist Ludwig von Mises pointed out back in the 1920s and 1930s, and he had first-hand experience of the Weimar hyperinflation. Inflation is not something that comes out of the sky or comes out comes out of nowhere like the plague. Inflation is a policy. None of what's happened over the last few years has happened by accident. I would argue it has all happened by design. And one of the things is they know the system is hopelessly corrupt and hopelessly bankrupt. We know it's corrupt anyway. We can we only need to open our eyes. Mm-hmm. We know the system's now effectively bankrupt. So the only way we can transition things now is, and it's going to be disorderly on the margin, the only way they can attempt to transition things now is basically by inflating that debt away. It's, in other words, it seems abundantly clear that there's no, no not even a vague sense of trying to support the value of that, of, of that issued debt. All it'll be is inflated away and then possibly the entire currency will then be replaced. Mm-hmm. And the last thing in the world we all want is the introduction of something like CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency, which will basically be the last, the removal of cash is the last bastion of freedom that exists in the in the financial markets. Mm-hmm. I do want to touch on the cash idea because you recently revisited your book, The War on Cash. But before we get there, you know, arguably we could say that there are countries that are in a lot worse shape, let's say like Japan or 
even the ECB as a financial entity itself with all of these opposing countries within it that have very different needs. So what thought do you have as to the order of this downfall? Do we see something like the Japanese carry trade, the yen carry trade unwinding first? And you know, are there an order to the dominoes? Or is it, as you say, just a chaotic mess up until a lot of these issues get resolved and in some ways reset? I mean, that's a great question. I'm not sure I have the, you know, the wherewithal to, to give you a definitive answer, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. The Japan example is, is undoubtedly fascinating. I mean, one of the reasons I, I'm particularly obsessed with Japan is because, firstly, I went out there in, in the mid-80s to, I spent the summer there with my sister who was teaching a Japanese school. So I spent the summer there and that was a fantastic holiday for me. And in one of the probably most different cultures to, let's say, you know, the Anglo-Saxon culture you can possibly imagine. And then I started my career in the early 90s working for Japanese banks. And by then, the bubble had already burst. So people are unaware, I think, of just how much damage was done to the Japanese economy during the bubble years and then the bust thereafter. So the Japanese market, equity market, peaked in 89 and has only recently exceeded that peak. So it's taken 30-odd whatever years just to, just to make up for lost time. Nominally. In nominal terms, that's correct. So the thing that people are maybe unaware of is in terms of the loss of wealth between property wealth, real estate wealth, and then equity market valuation wealth, Japan, since 1989, since its market peaked, has suffered the equivalent of two American Great Depressions. Not one, but two. So they had basically two 1930s experiences back to back. And the point I'm making is not just that it was a, it was clearly a disastrous deal, but the point I'm making is that the Japanese throughout that, they never had a big spike in unemployment. GDP, I think, was fairly stable throughout that period and the society was remarkably orderly there weren't riots on the streets and none of that stuff so one thing we can say i think without fear of being criticized is the japanese are stoic so my question is if we were to get something like that happening again in you know another modern western economy be it the us the uk or you've you mentioned europe by way of the ecb do we think that people would be quite as stoic? I think the answer is quite categorically, no no way, Jose. So the Japanese experiences, the Japanese really are a little bit unique here. In terms of the order in which basically currencies or, or systems fail, Japan, I think, has been the standout sort of potential candidate for some time. Japan has been the, or the yen has been like the bug in search of a windshield for as long as I can remember. But these things take so much longer sometimes than you ever think possible. Because when I started in the early 90s, 10-year JGB, Japanese government bond yields were around, I think, from if memory serves, they're around 6%. And then they went to 5 and then they went to 4%, and then they went to 3%. And every time you know they moved lower, people were saying, oh, that must be it now. And the you know, basically shorting Japanese government bonds became the widow-maker trade because everybody got carried out on a stretcher by doing it. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the, the JGB yield basically settled at what was it, zero, minus 50 basis points. I mean, it was, it was, it was in, quite incredible. Now, more recently, that's changed because the, the Bank of Japan does appear to have lost control of, let's say, yield curve control and, let's say, rate fixing. So already the yen's been under a bit of pressure. But these problems have been a long time coming, almost decades longer than you might have thought. So I guess all I'm saying is it's a chaotic outlook. Companies are willing to absorb an awful lot of pain. I'm not sure that pain can be absorbed by markets like the States, by the UK, by Europe. So however this plays out, I think I think at the bare minimum, what we can pretty much bank on is chaos, is, is literal chaos in, in things like currencies and in, in bond market terms. I'm amazed at how resilient the bond market's been in the US over the last, say, 12 months or so. We've had a, an amazing rally. 
with yields coming screaming in by best part of probably what one percent on the ten-year. But the underlying debt situation hasn't moved. They haven't moved the needle of, of basically U.S. sovereign debt. So I, as far as and the other thing I point out is if we're correct in assuming that the 1970s is the is the fair historical analog to the, what we're now living in and i think on many levels it is even if on, just purely optically you've got you know wars you know spring out everywhere you've got lots of social tension you've got lots of angst in the populace at large you've got high inflationary pressure you've got big debt problems etc 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 in the 70s, there were three successive inflation waves. There wasn't just one period higher after the OPEC oil shock. There were three successive sort of peaks to that process. We've just had the first one, I suspect. There will be more to follow. So anyone that thinks that inflation is dead, I, I don't think is paying attention. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. You know, I've I've asked the smartest people that I can find, you know, how do you see inflation progressing from this point? Because it's such an important idea to understand that we're not just in this one and done type thing, you know, despite what Janet Yellen wants to think that they've achieved their soft landing. I think there are several examples that support the idea that inflation is very likely on another wave back up. If we look at energy production being cut right now, if we look at shipping costs just skyrocketing because of the conflicts in the Middle East, if we look at just demand around all of these pieces. I think this is something that we're going to revisit. Yet, I don't think the governments of the world or the or the central banks, let's say, have the tools that they did in the 70s as it is purported, as we see this explanation of Volcker raising rates to break the back of inflation. I don't think that they have those tools available to them at this point. And also, people overestimate the ability of agents like the Fed to control stuff. A, ultimately, the interest rate is a fairly blunt tool, or whether you call it Fed funds or whatever, or what used to be LIBOR mm -hmm. here in the UK. It's a fairly blunt instrument because you're you're using this one thing to control. It's we're back to sort of Bastiat's broken windows fallacy again. That you you think you know that well here's the, here's the base rate, so you know, everything is fine and dandy. But you know, the economy is. It's so much more complex than that. And one of the first things I learned or learned properly was, I mean, the person I would give more credit to than anybody else for helping me understand, I think, how economies work and financial markets work is this guy Mises again, Ludwig von Mises. Mm -hmm. And he points out that the economy, you know, is not some abstract mathematical model, which I think is where the, the whole Keynesian project starts to, you know, leave the rails. It is not an abstract mathematical model. The economy is us. The economy is the interactions every day, every hour of literally millions, billions of people all doing what they think is in their you know, enlightened self-interest. And even though some people may be doing stupid things with their money, most people will not. Mm -hmm. The problem is that we then have governments intervening and, and then setting interest rates. So we're back to, you know, we're back to the 40 centuries of wage and price controls again. The government shouldn't set the price of money. Money's too important for that. So you've basically got on the one hand, you've got, to say, let's say, the natural order of a healthy free market trading economy. And then you've got the government wading in with its size 12 boots saying, no, no, no we're going to do this. And so they think they're in control of a process that they're not in control of. And Keynes himself admitted that when he said in an essay about the you know, the Great Depression in the, in the early 30s, I fear we've erred in the control of some delicate mechanism and our, and our prospects for wealth may be basically in ruins for years to come. And he wasn't wrong. So this is the whole idea. 
everything about the Keynesian economic model and system and belief is wrong because it assumes that the economy is a machine that can react to tweaks and dials and changes and, and, and flicks of switches, and it's not. The economy is us. So the only way you could have a functioning model of the economy would be to have a life-size model of the world, which is clearly impossible. So that's the problem that at the heart of it, the Keynesian model is unfit for purpose, and more people need to appreciate the limitations of policy in that regard. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's such an important point. And then the idea that this Keynesian model of economics was also just invented by a man, a man that's fallible, that might have been wrong about some things, just as Mises was probably wrong about uh, about you know a handful of things as well. I know nobody's perfect, but the, the book I'd recommend on this one, which I really enjoyed reading about, and I think I came across it in the late mid to late 90s, is a book called The Origins of Wealth by Eric Beinhocker. And The Origins of Wealth includes references to basically what I would call physics envy and the, I'm trying to think, it was Leon Walras. Leon Walras, I think you could argue, has a good claim to being the guy responsible for where it all started to go wrong. Mm-hmm. So Walras Sr., Walras's dad, was by all accounts a successful businessman, but Leon Walras was a bit of an idiot and he was an idiot at everything. He, he basically fell off the dumb tree and hit every branch on the way down. So he was sufficiently dumb that he even failed as a journalist, which was, I think tells you everything you need to know. And so he tried his hand at various things, but failed at all of them. And in desperation, Walras Sr. said to his son, why don't you try your, put your hand to this new science of economics? Mm-hmm. And then if I remember the story correctly, and this again, this is from The Origin of Wealth by Eric Beinhocker, Walras then basically proceeded to nick a whole bunch of principles from the world of physics and just barefacedly applied them to the world of the economy instead. Mm-hmm. So we went from, you know, so you're comparing Mises's The Economy Is Us, so it's effectively almost, you're dealing with like, you know, what would that be? something about behavioral psychology, let's say, and then you're applying things like you know, principles of Newtonian physics to it, which is palpably absurd. And that's where the rot set in, because once you, again, strip the economy or apply a model that doesn't work to the economy, then rather than replace the model, you'll just try, it's like banging a, a square, a round peg into a, you know, a square hole or vice versa. Mm-hmm. You just keep smashing at it until the whole thing disintegrates because it was never fit for purpose to begin with. Mm-hmm. So a bit of humility on the part of the economics profession would be would be deeply desirable. I don't think we're ever going to see it, sadly. Yeah, I mean, there's humility that should be had in in many of these branches of government, whether it be the Fed, even though they're supposed to be independent. I think it's going to be interesting to kind of <laughs> see that independence in the election year here ahead. But really, you know, I, I wanted to get back to this point, Tim, with you. You revisited your book, The War on Cash that you wrote in 2015. So once you stepped back and looked at it recently, what parts of that book do you think that you mistimed or you, or you got wrong from this new vantage point eight or nine years later? Here? Well, you only have to look at when the book was published. So firstly, anyone that wants to read a copy is more than welcome. They can do so freely. They can download a PDF copy of the book mm-hmm. from our website. We'll put that link in the show notes as well. But people are welcome to do that. So it doesn't cost anything. I think you could say basically, first and foremost, simply the timing you know, the book was a collaboration between myself and effectively my then publisher, which is a company called South Bank Publications, which is a financial newsletter service, ultimately owned by Bill Bonner. And they said, you know, would you want to put a book together? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So that was in back in 2015. And it was called The War on Cash. It's basically a series of essays about you know, the, the attacks on financial freedom that were then occurring and perhaps were anticipated to occur in the future. So I think we got the general thrust was broadly right. 
But you look at the date, that's 2015, that's nine years ago. And as I was saying earlier about something else, these things, what you think is inevitable still takes you know, years longer than you ever thought possible. Mm-hmm. But then to counter that, everything that unravels really, really quickly, faster than you ever thought possible. So things are really slow and then they suddenly accelerate. It's like, you know, that old cliche about how did you go bankrupt suddenly and then all at once. So the timing, we, it was clearly sort of, let's say, premature in a sense. But I'd also argue that the dangers of what we're talking about, loss of financial freedom, most important, they're so important that I'd much rather be a year too early than a, than a, than a second too late. So the timing clearly was was off. But I think to be fair, that also reflects the kind of ridiculous basil faulty-ish lengths to which governments and central banks have gone to keep the show on the road for the last decade. Mm-hmm. I mean, I used to be a bond salesman for a living, and the idea that you could ever get to a world in which not just zero interest rates, but negative interest rates could even be, you know, foreseeable, let alone actioned in the marketplace, is is just stunning. It's just like a stunning refusal to admit the laws of basic economics. So it, it was certainly early, and it, it, if I were doing the book now, I would certainly. I mean, there's no reference to cryptocurrency, for example. I didn't even know about cryptocurrency back then, and I'm not saying I know much more about it now. So there's certainly, if there's extra chapters to be written, then there's certainly be one on Bitcoin or the topic of cryptocurrency more generally. But you know, again, in that sense, it was just sort of like a victim of its time. Mm-hmm. But in a general sense, beyond that, I'm reasonably happy, I think, with what we put out. And I, I hope that even now, in the, at this late stage, it'll have value to anyone that's you know, interested in, in picking up a copy. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you think, if you could take one or two of the lessons from that book to share with our audience, what do you think are, are one or two of the most important points? I think the stuff that is front and center now, because things have moved on from you know the time when that was written. Mm-hmm. And if you like, it's a bit like, so say, 1984, that 1984 was written as fiction and now seems to be documentary, you know, testament of fact. So things that were written as, hopefully, this will never need to happen, mm-hmm. now has to be seen through the prism of, now you need to be doing this. And they're all effectively, let's say, pragmatic responses to you know, the fact that you have these big parasitic corporations who are intruding into our lives and stripping us of freedom and behaving in rank and offensive ways, the logical way of dealing with that, short of basically getting you know, some entity to reprimand those entities and, and hopefully you know, improve their behavior, and you only have to look, I don't know if you heard about the Fujitsu scandal here in the UK and the sub-post offices. Have you heard, have you heard about this? No, I haven't. So there's a, a BB, uh, sorry, a T, an ITV series I and mean, it might, might be mr bates versus the post office but it's, it's a real life story i think it goes back to at least 2012 the post office in the uk introduced a new software tool and we have all these little sort of little local sort of post office counter businesses and they're called sub sub post offices and all these guys basically had this software which was provided by the japanese company fujitsu mm-hmm. rolled out and then the system started saying oh there's, a, you know, there's an error in the accounts and someone's been diddling the figures and as a result, hundreds of people were basically prosecuted for basically you know, having their fingers in the cookie jar. I think very little of which actually ever really happened. So the system was glitchy and it didn't work. And the post office enjoys a special, a privileged place in British society, which basically means it has prosecuting powers in its own right. So it can prosecute people independently of the police force. So you had a hun- literally, as I understand, I haven't seen that. The, I haven't seen the show myself. I'm going to get around to it. But you have this this scandal, basically, the government in alliance with a large corporation that has seemingly no real accountability, basically 
you know, surrounding people, accusing them of basically fraud. And people have committed suicide over this stuff. So it's had a real world impact on people's lives and the rest of it. And as you might fear, this is exactly what happens when you have a, you know, a big state and a large, basically unaccountable corporation. Everybody closes ranks and denies there's a problem. And it's only the, the, the poor little guys that end up you know, paying the price at the end of the day. So this is a huge sort of cause celeb now. And the government stepped in, and, and this is, so it's been going on for over a decade, but the government has now said, okay, they're going to basically recompense people for what they've been through. You can't bring people back to life, of course, but you can give people some form of, let's say, financial recompense for what they've been through. Mm-hmm. That in itself is symptomatic of, of just where we've got to, that nobody feels like there's very little in which we can trust now. What you need is the bedrock of a functioning culture, society, and market is, is mutual trust. And the last few years has just thrown that all away. I've got a little bit off topic, so I think I managed to derail myself. But either way, that would be, in terms of the book, The War on Cash, that would probably be the thing I'd say, the point I'd reiterate is at a time when it's so difficult to trust corporations, when it's so difficult to trust government, when it's so difficult to trust basically the big state and the the architecture of the state, the natural, pragmatic, logical response to that is do everything at a local level, if at all possible. Paying cash, don't use credit cards or digital wallets have cash circulating so that it stays alive mm-hmm. and deal wherever you can with local businesses, local people. The other show that you may or may not have heard about this we've had recently is a thing called Clarkson's Farm. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Clarkson, who's a fairly unequivocal, fairly forthright TV presenter. He used to do a Top Gear show for petrol heads, people who like driving fast cars and then crashing them. <laughs> More recently sort of retired from that. Well, it was during COVID that he ended up basically doing the farm. This is true. So Top Gear left basically the BBC and went on to Amazon. And then he started Clarkson's Farm. So he literally bought a farm. And it single-handedly, Jeremy Clarkson has gone from being a sort of slightly contentious sort of popular figure to like the national, you know, like a national treasure. Because he's shown just how difficult it is to run a farm in the 2020s here in the UK, where the government and the state is doing everything it possibly can do to shut you down. Mm-hmm. And so he, he deserves, probably deserves at the minimum a knighthood for that alone. Because I think after the first year, <laughs> and you see just the pain that is involved is involved with you know, the mm-hmm. long hours, the sweat, the heartache, the planning, the red tape, the no, you can't do this, not invented here, all this kind of nonsense. And at the end of the day, he has something like you know, about £100 profit to show for his trouble. It's heartbreaking. But then you think, well, he's a celebrity and he's well off. So you know, the world's smallest violin's playing just for him. But that's not the point. The point is what he's highlighting is just how difficult the entire industry is for most of the people in it, mm-hmm. small farmers. And that takes us right back to basically the devil's point again, which is you've now got farmers rallying and marching and protesting increasingly all around the West. And we'll just hope that someone in the corridors of power is actually paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. I think the show does a great job of showing not only how hard it is to actually bring a crop to yield and get it to market. But the bureaucracy on top of that is unbelievable. It is, I couldn't imagine how frustrated those farmers must be to be doing their best to, you know, try and help feed and fuel society. And yet at every turn, at least in the UK, it seems, they're just constantly faced with red tape and challenges from the legal standpoint or from the overseeing eye rather than just being able to focus on bringing the best product to market that they can. And I really do wonder whether 2024 may yet be genuinely a year of revolutions, because it's, it's often 
been said that you know any society is three meals away from a revolution and now you've got basically a pincer act happening because you've got the farmers themselves are being squeezed mm-hmm. so they're increasingly finding it difficult simply to earn a living at all and obviously the predations of people like the wef you know are not exactly welcome in that context and at the same time you've got the consumer who's also squeezed because the, the price of this stuff's going up and for many people things that they used to take the granted are no longer affordable so things are really coming to a head quite quickly now Absolutely. Well, Tim, I think on that happy note, we can you know look forward to some of these things and how they're going to play out uh, in the year ahead here. Well, I have to give a shout out to Lily Tomlin at this point. She's one of my mm-hmm. favorite cheesy quotes, which is, things are going to get a lot worse before they get worse. <laughs> well, you know, that really does seem like a theme here. It, it seems like this, let's say next decade is going to be one of trying to preserve the value of assets that you have accrued or trying to preserve your value versus trying to just make money. And, you know, I think that our listeners have a good sense of that at this point, but I appreciate the conversation to be able to just ramble on about a lot of these issues and even just getting your perspective from the UK on how they're developing as well. I think that's really interesting to me to be able to have that conversation. So I really appreciate that. Well, it's always a pleasure to you know to be involved in that. And for what it's worth, I happen to think that you know what I mentioned earlier. I think the Great Awakening really is a real thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that is cause for optimism, despite the uh, the uncertainties and the and the challenges ahead. Absolutely, I definitely agree with that. Of course, for those that want to read or hear more from Tim, the name of Tim's podcast with Paul Rodriguez is called the State of the Markets Podcast. Your Twitter account for now at Tim Price nineteen sixty nine. And of course, a lot of your essays and more information about you guys is available at pricevaluepartners.com. Anywhere else? That's it. That's it for the moment. Perfect. Tim, thanks so much for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Tom. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.